Despite denials from Ukrainian officials, Russian President Vladimir Putin continues to press his unfounded claim that Ukraine has a dirty bomb that it plans to use. It's Thursday, October 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, despite good news showing the nation's gross domestic product rebounding, there are still plenty of economic challenges. Also this hour, the city of Holyoke hopes using shot spotter technology will help it tackle gun violence. It's a strategy that I'm looking forward to try in the hopes that we can curve the concerns that are happening out in the community. And a conversation with YouTube frontman Bono, who has no plans to let up on his activism. I'm trying to make peace with myself, I'm trying to make peace with my maker, but I'm not trying to make peace with the world. The world is a very unfair, deeply unfair place. Sunny today in the 60s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. With less than two weeks before the midterm elections, record high inflation is emerging as a major issue among voters. Republicans are trying to pin the blame on rising prices in the United States on the Biden administration. NPR's Ozma Khalid reports Democrats are pushing back in the final days of campaigning. Republicans and Democrats that I've interviewed agree they are frustrated with rising prices, but they differ on who is to blame. I was in Georgia last week, and I went to an early voting site just north of Atlanta, and that's where I met Richard Johnson. He's trying to buy a new house, but mortgage rates have spiked because the Fed raised interest rates to curb inflation. Johnson has been feeling the effects of inflation, but he does not fault Biden. That's NPR's Ozma Khalid reporting. President Biden will travel to Syracuse, New York today to promote a $100 billion investment to build semiconductor factories in the region. Biden signed bipartisan legislation earlier this year that's designed to boost the manufacture of computer chips in the United States. Nations are not doing enough to stop extreme climate change. That's according to the United Nations Environment Program. NPR's Lauren Summer reports the group's findings come out about a week before the start of crucial climate negotiations. Add up all the climate pledges from different countries, and the world is on track to cut heat-trapping emissions by about 3% by the end of the decade. The problem is, the science shows emissions need to fall by 45%. That's to avoid extreme climate impacts, like much more deadly storms and heat waves. Emissions went up last year as economic activity rebounded after the pandemic. World leaders will soon gather in Egypt to negotiate their climate pledges at the COP27 summit. Tensions are running high between developing countries and richer nations about who should be doing the most on climate change. Lauren Summer, NPR News. New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez is under federal criminal investigation. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports this is the second federal probe Menendez has faced in recent years. The online news platform Semaphore first reported the probe, and an advisor to Menendez confirmed it. Michael Solomon told NPR the senator is aware of the investigation, but that he does not know the scope of the investigation. Solomon added, quote, as always, should any official inquiries be made, the senator is available to provide any assistance that is requested of him or his office. Menendez figures prominently in the Senate as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He was indicted in 2015 on bribery charges. His corruption trial in 2017 ended in a mistrial. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. 
in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Downtown Boston currently only has around half the foot traffic it did before the pandemic. That means more vacant buildings and less economic activity. Today, the city is out with a new plan to revitalize the area. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports. Only 30 percent of offices in downtown Boston are currently occupied. City officials want to see that space turned into new businesses and housing. Their plan is a mix of rezoning, marketing campaigns, and financial incentives for businesses to relocate or expand downtown. Boston's chief of planning, Arthur Jemison, hopes that will attract more visitors. To me, the urgency is not just creating an occasion in the near term, but also putting in place those things that are going to bring more people to downtown, remind people why it's so great to be downtown. The plan includes providing low or free rent to some startups and nonprofits, particularly those led by women and people of color. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Sports betting could generate some $140 million in revenue for the Commonwealth in its first year. The Boston Herald reports that's the estimate of state lawmakers who say half of that revenue would come from the sale of gaming licenses. The state's gaming commissioner says legalized sports betting could start in time for the Super Bowl in February. The Gaming Commission will likely hammer out more regulations for sports betting when the group meets today. Worcester leaders are divided on having a conversation about what to do with a statue of Christopher Columbus. It sits outside the city's train station. City councilors gridlocked in a 5-to-5 vote on Tuesday. Half voted to move forward with a conversation, and half voted to essentially end any discussion. One councilor tells the Telegram and Gazette that a similar petition was filed in 2020 and was also voted down. Researchers in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont are beginning to study how well-prepared manufactured home parks are for climate change. Mara Hoplamazian reports these communities have a particular set of challenges when it comes to extreme weather. Mary Stampone is New Hampshire's state climatologist, and she's helping lead the research on climate change in manufactured homes. She says those kinds of homes are more vulnerable to the effects of our changing climate. The structures themselves, because of the way they're built off-site and brought in, they tend to be a greater risk to severe weather, so specifically you know, flooding high winds as well as extreme temperatures. Those communities are often built in more flood-prone areas, and she says it could be harder for residents to find a safe place if their home is impacted. Researchers are hoping to create a database of manufactured home park communities, talk with residents about how climate change is impacting them, and support climate resilience efforts. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins are back on the ice tonight as they host the Detroit Red Wings. Boston has won six of seven games to start the season. Sunny today and less muggy will have a high in the mid-60s, clear overnight with a low around 40, increasing clouds tomorrow with a high in the 50s, sunny and around 60 for the weekend. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. A new report from the United Nations finds that the world has less than a decade to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 45 percent. This is if the world wants to limit the worst climate damage. Scientists say we need to keep global warming to within 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, but many nations are not meeting their own lower pledges. Jennifer Allen is a strategic advisor at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, and she joins us this morning. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Good morning. Jennifer, when you hear this news out of the UN that nations are still so far away from what needs to happen to prevent the worst effects of climate change, what goes through your mind? Well, unfortunately, uh, it's not really new or news. This is the longest in a string of reports and actually a bunch of reports this week that have put a firm underline that countries are individually and they're collectively failing to act. They're failing to reduce emissions. They're failing to build resilience to the effects of climate change. And that developed countries are failing to support developing countries to help take those actions that maybe they couldn't afford. So year on year, we see new pledges, we see new promises. And and what this report starkly shows is that all those pledges and all that talk is not being backed up by action. We're going to see maybe a 1% decrease in emissions by 2030 from all of the promises that we've seen on climate change in the last year. Let's just underscore what you just said. We're likely to see a 1% decrease in greenhouse gas emissions, and the UN is saying that needs to go down by 45% in the time period, in the same time period. Exactly. We are barely putting a scratch in it. So maybe for useful context, if you think back to during the pandemic, when there were stay-at-home orders, or here in the UK, we had several national lockdowns, all of our lives changed a lot. You know, we were home, we weren't traveling around as much. That was actually just a blip in emissions. So that that was a 7% decrease in emissions. And we need to go down 43. So we are talking about a really systemic difference and and big transformation Uh to how we get our energy, how we build our buildings, how we secure our food systems, and where the financial sector puts its money. So you just alluded to it, but the report says incremental change is is definitely not going to cut it, hasn't until now, not going to help us get to this goal. Rapid transformation has to occur. But what what does that practically look like? Yeah, and that that I think is sort of the, the challenge is we're all struggling to collectively imagine what this might be. Um, to my mind, this looks like collective responsibility in a way that it's all hands on deck. So every government department, every company will need to start seeing itself implicated in dealing with climate change. So whether that's talking about infrastructure or agriculture or regulating or incentivizing the financial sector, it means everyone has a role to play. And we have to start thinking about those tough choices to wean our fossil fuels that are embedded in our economic system. Uh, it's not going to be easy. There also will have to be policies and and thinking put in to how do we make sure we don't leave anyone behind. If someone's worked their whole life in the fossil fuel sector, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't either have early retirement or have opportunity to have another equally well-paying job in the renewable low-carbon economy. 
So there's a lot to think about here, but the main message of this report is we have to start acting as well as trying to figure things out as we go. So what do you do about the biggest emitters? I mean, when you think about China or India, countries that have pushed back against limits on coal, or the United States, which has had a hard time meeting its own climate goals. Yeah, and every country struggling to meet its own climate goals. That's certainly also what this report shows. Other reports have shown that countries are actually actively investing in fossil fuel infrastructure. So we're not really moving the same way across the board. Um, so it's, you know, talking about China and India, they too have to be part of this solution. And we're looking into a new climate cop and unfortunately American and Chinese relations aren't great. Um, and these major emitters will have to find a way to work together. They're the ones that will have to talk to each other so they know what each other's going to do. And there isn't this concern about competition and, and competitive environment, economic concerns. Dr. Jennifer Allen with the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Just how far can Russia push a disinformation campaign about Ukraine? President Vladimir Putin is picking up a theme previously brought up by lower-ranking Russians. He is making an evidence-free claim about Ukraine that the U.S. says is false. Putin spoke at a meeting of intelligence chiefs from former Soviet republics. What he said there, we are aware of plans by Ukraine to use a dirty bomb as a provocation. Now, Russia gave no evidence of Ukraine planning to use a bomb that would spread radiation on its own territory. The U.S. has warned that Russia may be setting a pretext for its own future actions. NPR's Charles Maines is covering the story from Moscow. Hey there, Charles. Hi there. Good morning. How has Russia injected this claim into the global discourse? You know, it all started over the weekend uh, when members of Russia's defense ministry held calls with U.S. officials and started talking about dirty bombs. Uh, then we heard from Russia's ambassador to the United Nations, then the foreign ministry, and of course, state media. So, so it's been a steady drumbeat here. And the Russian argument basically amounts to this. Uh, Ukraine's civilian nuclear facilities are being used to create a dirty bomb to detonate in Ukraine to then blame on Russia. And yesterday, as you said, Putin himself made the same charge in a video address, and that's raised concerns over what Putin might do next. Okay, uh, so you have this claim being made again and again without any evidence given, uh, although the United States has already warned that it would be an incredibly serious mistake for Russia to detonate some kind of explosive device and blame it on Ukraine. Uh, how, how, has this kind, how does this fit into Moscow's broader efforts to use nuclear threats in the war? Well, you know, from the beginning, Putin has issued not particularly veiled threats uh, to keep the West from getting too involved in Ukraine. Uh, for example, he raised Russia's nuclear alert level in the early days of the conflict, although U.S. officials said, and this is important, they saw no actual change in Russia's nuclear posture. Uh, now, more recently, Putin said Russia would use any means necessary to defend what Moscow claims are these newly annexed Russian territories in Ukraine, with Putin warning it was no bluff. And, you know, there's some in the West that are worried that this latest Russian charge concerning the dirty bomb reflects Putin's dwindling options on the battlefield. You know, as Russia has struggled uh, in part because of Western arms uh, support to Ukraine, there are even voices here in Moscow that argue only a massive strike or, or the threat of one could shift for, uh, Russia's fortunes. And so Russia's dirty bomb allegations, true or not, uh, could in some in the West say provide Moscow with a pretext to take more drastic measures.
Russia also did something else that could be seen as nuclear saber rattling, a test of its nuclear defenses. Yesterday, here's some of the sound of that sent by their defense ministry. Somewhat ominous sounds there. What do we make of that? Well, you know, let's be clear, you know, the Russians do these drills around this time every year, uh, and Russian officials did warn the U.S. of these maneuvers in advance, as they're supposed to, so it wasn't a surprise. And the U.S. has its own version of this. Uh, Putin oversaw tests of intercontinental ballistic missiles fired by land, air, and sea in what was a simulation of Russia's response to an enemy nuclear attack. So, you know, it's a drill, but it's also a message given the timing and one that leaves the West with the same question it's had throughout the conflict in Ukraine. How far is, is Russia willing to go? Uh, we might get some more clues later today when Putin's expected to give a major foreign policy speech. NPR's Charles Maines will be listening from Moscow. Charles, thanks so much. Thank you. A second woman is now accusing Georgia Republican Herschel Walker of paying for an abortion during a prior relationship. The woman, who wants her name withheld for privacy reasons, says she is speaking out because Walker called for abortion restrictions in his U.S. Senate campaign. Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting has details. In a virtual press conference Wednesday, a woman calling herself Jane Doe said Herschel Walker pushed her to have an abortion in 1993, paid for it, and even drove her to the clinic. Herschel Walker is a hypocrite, and he is not fit to be a U.S. senator. Doe says she's not coming forward because of partisan politics, because she voted for former President Trump twice. And the reason I am here today is because he has publicly taken the position that he is, quote, about life, unquote. That and his denial of another story where an ex-girlfriend said Walker paid her to have one abortion and unsuccessfully pushed for another. NPR has not been able to independently corroborate either woman's claims. The press conference was called by notable women's rights advocate Gloria Allred, who is Doe's attorney. She shared things like letters, photos, and other mementos that allegedly show the connection between Walker and the woman, including a voicemail Walker supposedly left while in Europe during the 1992 Winter Olympics. But I have to call you like early in the morning because it's late at night there when uh, I'm up and the restaurant is open. But I keep trying to call you. I want to say I love you. Okay. Walker has continued to deny any and all claims he paid for an abortion, including on the campaign trail Wednesday. Just before the second woman's allegations became public, Walker deflected questions from reporters by dismissing the story before specific claims had been made. I'm going to just say right now, you know, guys, I'm done with this foolishness. I've already told people this is a lie and I'm not going to entertain you. Beyond the denials, Walker has recently tried to walk back his stance on abortion. He falsely claimed in a recent debate he always supported Georgia's law. It's a ban that starts around six weeks into pregnancy, with some exceptions, instead of his prior stance supporting a federal ban with no exceptions. It's a high-stakes race and could potentially decide which party controls the Senate. More than a million Georgians have already cast their ballots. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBOR's Morning Edition, voters are being inundated with political ads as the midterms grow closer. Many focus on crime. We compared their claims to the most current statistics. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. For years, legal activists fought to free their client, who was an elephant. They argued that Happy the Elephant is being imprisoned against her will in a New York zoo. Well, earlier this year, the state's highest court rejected that argument, but the question is now out there. If corporations can have some personhood rights, why not animals too? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 66, clear tonight with a low around 40. Tomorrow it grows cloudy and the high temperature will only be near 53. Sunny on Saturday with a high near 59. It's 60 degrees in Boston. That weekend weather will be ideal for a bike ride on the new Northern Strand Trail. Officials cut the ribbon opening the 10-mile bike trail yesterday. It starts at Assembly Square, Somerville, and runs through Everett, Malden, Revere, Saugus, and Lynn. State officials say the trail will eventually extend east to Nahant Beach. It's 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. If you live in a swing state right now, it is almost impossible to avoid midterm campaign ads. And a lot of them are focused on crime. Enough is enough, and I'll never apologize for backing the blue. As governor, I'll go after the criminals, not cops. In the Senate, I'll protect Florida from bad ideas, like defunding the police. That's just crazy. On November 8th, vote like your life depends on it. It just might. Three quarters of voters recently polled by Politico and Morning Consult say violent crime is a major problem in the U.S. But what's actually happening with crime rates across the country isn't so straightforward. Jeff Asher is a data analyst who specializes in crime statistics. He's worked with the Pentagon, the CIA, and the New Orleans Police Department, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Are crime rates in America going up? We really don't have a common definition of what crime means when you ask that question. Aha. Uh-huh. If you're talking about crime with sort of a capital C as what the FBI measures as the national crime rate, you're talking about seven major types of crime, and the vast majority of them are property crimes. Hmm. And property crime has been falling regularly for 20 years. This is theft, auto theft, and burglary. Got it. Is what makes up property crime. Okay. When you talk about violent crime, you're talking about aggravated assault, murder, rape, and robbery. That has gone down since the 90s. It increased a little bit in 2020, 
it probably increased a little bit or was even in 2021. But even that, when we talk about crime, is not what people think of. What they're really thinking of is murder and gun violence. And murder makes up 0.2% about of all big picture crimes every year. But it's really the thing. It's the crime with the most societal harm. It's the thing that people tend to care about the most. Mm. And so when we talk about murder, yes, we've seen a pretty dramatic uptick over the last two plus years. It went up almost 30% in 2020. It probably was up about four or 5% nationally in 2021. And this year, we're probably seeing a four to 5% decline relative to 2021. So we're still at this really highly elevated level now compared to where we were in 2019. Now, if we go back to the 90s, we're still down significantly 30 or 40%, but we're much higher than we were three or four years ago. And like you said, there's a different emotional component to people's perception of murder rates. Even if it hasn't affected them, a small uptick can create an elevated sense that things are scarier everywhere. And I think that what has given it so much potency in the midterms is that the increase in murder in 2020 really was a national phenomenon. It happened in big cities. It happened in small cities. It happened in counties that voted for Trump. It happened in counties that voted for Biden. It was really everywhere. And so I think that most places in America are grappling with at least some increase in, in gun violence over the last two years, which mm. brings it to the forefront of these elections as they're taking place now. How reliable is the data? I mean, is it hard to get cities, municipalities, counties to hand this information over, make it public? So it's both reliable and unreliable. At a city level, for most big cities, they tend to produce it in a way that is obtainable in some format in near real time, talking about in the last couple of weeks, or the last couple of months, or the last quarter. When you're talking about smaller places, small cities, suburbs, sheriff's offices, it gets a lot harder to get the data. And then when you're talking about what the FBI collects, 18,000 law enforcement agencies reporting to the FBI every year, the FBI collects it and it reports it 10 months after the fact. So it's really difficult to get national level estimates in any sort of time frame where you can understand these trends as they're happening. And we've really got this change in murder, which almost happened overnight and has been sustained for two years. And we're not able to measure progress against it or regression against it. Because at this really, really inopportune moment, our data collection has suddenly gotten much worse. What are the broader societal consequences of not having reliable data on crime rates, especially heading into national elections? Well, you, you get lots of discussions about X crime is up and the other candidate says, no, X crime is not up. And it's a lot harder to refute that. I get the question a lot about like, why, why do we need to be having this data? And this is a problem. It is a problem that we don't fully understand. It's a problem that we don't fully know how to solve. and we're not in a position to be able to even measure it in any type of way that we can get solid understanding of what's happening into the hands of researchers and policymakers so that we can determine what's working, what's not working, what should we be investing in, what should we not be investing in. This is a little out of your lane, but <laughs> what do you tell a family member who might come to you and say, Jeff, what do I do? I'm 
you know, I'm being inundated with all these ads that are telling me crime is up. I haven't seen evidence of myself, but now I'm like afraid and it's going to influence my vote. I mean, how do you help people sort through all this messaging right now? I think it's really hard. And if, you know, that that's sort of what we do is we try to build tools to evaluate both at a local and a national level what's happening. I'm a data analyst. So the response to someone that, you know, if a family member or a friend comes to me and asks, you know, I want to know what's happening in this neighborhood or I want to understand what's happening in terms of gun violence in my city, I'm going to, I'm going to send them a chart. Probably not the most effective means of communicating, but it's the way that we understand what's happening and whether or not what's happening is working is to look at the data behind it. And absent that, we get a lot of politicians that are saying a lot of things that frequently are based on anecdote or sort of the vibes of the moment. And we get then a lot of misinformation and, and poor decisions being made in the name of dataless arguments. Jeff Asher is the co-founder of AH Datalytics. We so appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, some hospital administrators across the country are worried about their capacity, with flu season ramping up and another COVID wave expected. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the historic Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone, a story of resurrection during the Great Migration in this new production helmed by director Lillianne Brown. Now through November 13th, HuntingtonTheater.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Moscow continues to insist Ukraine is planning to detonate a radioactive dirty bomb and then blame Russia for it. Here's White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby. It is a common uh, Russian play for them to blame others for what they are doing themselves or about to do themselves. However, Kirby says the Biden administration has seen no evidence that Russia is preparing to deploy a dirty bomb or use tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine. NATO's secretary general calls Russia's assertion absurd. Some hospitals in the U.S. report being inundated with patients suffering from respiratory infections, especially RSV. NPR's Rob Stein says RSV can be serious for some people. This virus, the RSV, which stands for respiratory syncytial virus, tends to surge every winter, just like the flu. And for most people, it just causes something like a cold, you know. But RSV can be more serious, even life-threatening, especially for very young children and older people. What's different this year is that RSV is surging much earlier than usual. Flu activity is also increasing in most areas of the country. President Biden is expected to highlight his efforts to boost the production of computer chips in the U.S. when he travels to Syracuse, New York today. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
The Haverhill School Committee is set to vote today on a new teacher's contract. The teachers' union ratified the three-year contract last week. Disagreements over a new deal led teachers to walk off the job last week in a four-day strike. Both sides say the new deal includes higher pay for teachers and it addresses concerns over classroom safety. Today, the New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill in Boylston becomes the first garden in the country to have its operations certified as environmentally friendly. The designation comes from a national company working to make landscaping greener. More now from WBOR's Paula Mora. The Botanic Garden transitioned most of its daily operations to electric, including leaf blowers, weed whackers, chainsaws, and carts. The goal is to reduce carbon emissions, noise, and toxic fumes. Mark Richardson, the garden's director of horticulture, says getting an electric mower made the biggest impact on their carbon footprint. The electric equipment typically has a pretty high sticker price, um, so it's a, a much larger capital investment, but the maintenance costs are next to nothing. The garden is also planning to build a solar grid to charge the equipment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Officials in Salem say the city remains on pace to have a record-breaking number of visitors this October. The city says more than 185,000 people visited last weekend, which was 1% increase over the same weekend last year. For the entire month, the number of visitors is up 9% from last year. With Halloween days away, the city is urging people not to drive in, but to instead take the commuter rail or the ferry from Boston. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? The Bruins will host the Detroit Red Wings tonight. Boston has won its last three games. Mac Jones will be the Patriots' starting quarterback this Sunday against the Jets. ESPN reports Jones participated in a full practice yesterday for the first time since injuring his ankle last month. In your forecast, we finally get a dry day today. There will be clear skies and temperatures in the mid-60s. Tonight it stays clear and falls to the low 40s. There may be some gusty winds. Tomorrow some clouds and cooler and the low 50s. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In the midst of this election season, we get new numbers on the economy today. They're expected to show that the U.S. economy grew at a relatively healthy rate in the last three months. Sounds good, but how much can we make of that? NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are these numbers going to tell us about how the economy is doing? This is the gross domestic product. It's the broadest measure of economic activity, and it's expected to show the economy grew at an annual rate of 2 to 3% in the late summer and early fall, which sounds pretty good, especially mm-hmm. compared to the first half of the year when GDP showed the economy was shrinking. In reality, though, the economy is kind of in a holding pattern. Mark Zandi is chief economist at Moody's Analytics. 
if you take a step back and look at GDP, it's gone effectively nowhere over the past year. So one quarter or two, it's down a bit. This quarter, it's up a little bit. But net-net, we're kind of treading water. Treading water, of course, is not great, but it is better than sinking. What is keeping the economy from growing more quickly? Inflation is certainly one challenge. It's cutting into people's buying power. And in response, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. Mortgage rates have more than doubled in the last year, and that's taking a heavy toll on the housing market, which is a significant component of GDP. Paul Schwinghammer builds custom homes in Indiana. His company, Hallmark Homes, had a record year last year when the housing market was booming. But he sees a lot less work coming down the pipeline now. We are seeing that the top of the funnel is not as full as it was. So we know that as we finish homes, we're not going to be starting as many in the coming months in the next year as we had been in the last two years. And this is not an accident. Uh, the Fed is deliberately raising borrowing costs in an effort to tamp down demand and curb inflation. The housing market's one of the first places that shows up, but it probably won't be the last. At the same time, Scott, you're telling us these numbers with the economy treading water. Something is also pulling up the economy, even as other things are dragging it down. What is working? The biggest driver of the economy is, as always, consumer spending. And so far, that has held up pretty well, even though prices are going up faster than most people's wages. In some cases, people have been able to draw on savings that they built up in the first two years of the pandemic to supplement their spending. Uh, the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute says, on average, bank account balances are still a lot higher now than they were in 2019, before the pandemic. Now, those bank balances are starting to come down, so you can't necessarily count on those savings to prop up spending indefinitely. How's next year looking? We are probably in for a period of uh, slow growth, uh, if not outright contraction. A lot will depend on how hard the Fed hits the brakes and for how long. A lot of forecasters think the U.S. will slip into recession uh, in the coming year. Zandi, though, is hopeful we might avoid that, but he says it's a close call. We need to catch a break. You know, we've been pretty unlucky. Uh, we got nailed by a global pandemic, which still is creating havoc in many parts of the world. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which wasn't even on the radar screen a year ago. So we just need a little bit of luck. So far, the job market's held up very well. Employers added nearly 3.8 million jobs so far this year. We'll be on the lookout for any slowdown in the October jobs numbers when they come out next week. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Early voting is underway in Iowa, where voters will decide whether to give Republican Chuck Grassley an eighth term in the U.S. Senate. On the whole, national Democrats think the state isn't competitive for them. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports, though, that Grassley is now facing the toughest re-election battle of his political career. This is the 99th county, county meeting that I've had for the 42nd year in a row. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley has been representing Iowa for what seems like forever. For decades, he was reelected in a state many saw as purple. Megan Goldberg is a political scientist at Cornell College in eastern Iowa. She says things have changed. And so as things have gotten more polarized, so have people. And so you should expect a lot of states that were purple to start to shift one direction. We have the demographics that like are going to push us in the rightward direction, not the leftward. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade energized supporters of reproductive rights here, even in small towns that turn out big for Republicans. 
Like in McGregor, where I come across a handful of protesters holding signs that say things like women, vote like your life depends on it, because it does. Aaron Cubbin is one of the protesters here almost every Friday. We're barreling towards 2024, which really seems like the last chance we have to stay a democracy. It's scary. She says it's hard to believe Iowa helped launch former President Obama's rise to the White House and was among the first to legalize same-sex marriage. Chuck Grassley has been in Washington for nearly a half century. He's been re-elected easily, partly because he presents himself as a moderate. But the 89-year-old has learned to embrace former President Trump like Republican voters have in the state. Grassley accepted his endorsement at a Trump rally in Des Moines last year. I was born at night, but not last night. So if I didn't accept the endorsement of a person that's got 91% of the Republican voters in Iowa, I wouldn't be too smart. That means, though, he's often facing questions about the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. I asked Grassley recently why he pivots to talk about election policy instead of pushing back on Trump's false claim about a stolen election. Don't you think that's what I should be doing instead of talking about the personality of, of an individual? Would that be an opportunity, though, to say that the election was legitimate? You voted to certify the election I, of President Joe Biden. I shouldn't have to repeat that. It's a fact that what I said on November the 14th when the electoral votes were December. counted. December. De- oh, December 14th, yeah. You hear his staffer there at the end. The new Des Moines Register Iowa poll suggests voters might be ready to move on, even as this state becomes redder. Grassley is just three points ahead of his Democratic challenger, retired Navy Admiral Mike Franken. There's a portion of Iowa that will not vote for me because I'm a Democrat. That will not change. I will hold office and I will support them to the best of my ability. That's completely different than the Republican perspective on this state, where it is support your own and to hell with the rest. Many had written Franken's campaign off after a police report surfaced saying he kissed a former staffer without consent. Still, Franken raised twice as much money as Grassley in the last fundraising quarter, and he's hammering Grassley on abortion. Megan Goldberg at Cornell College says Franken may have a very narrow path to victory. Where Republicans go in and they vote for Republicans, for governor, for the House of Representatives, and they skip voting in the Senate race because they're not interested in voting for Grassley, but they can't bring themselves to vote for a Democrat. Expect Franken to highlight Grassley's extensive tenure in Washington over the next couple of weeks as he attempts the seemingly impossible task of unseating a titan of Iowa politics. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the city of Holyoke is turning to a technology that identifies the sound of gunshots to address gun violence. And in our next hour, for the last several years, we've been hearing about the impact of concussions on men like football players. Now there's evidence that they have a very different impact on women. In your forecast, sunny and mid-60s today, clear and low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, partly cloudy and low 50s, sunny and upper 50s on Saturday. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Inuendo in Natick and Inuendo.com. 
Now in business news, Boston-based alcohol delivery company Drizzly has been ordered to better protect the data of its customers. That comes after the exposure of the information of 2.5 million customers in 2020. The order from the Federal Trade Commission requires the company to destroy unnecessary information and restricts what data the company can collect. The order also personally applies to Drizzly CEO Corey Rellis and will continue to apply to him, even if he leaves the company. The city of Worcester will break ground today on a new housing on new housing at the former site of the Table Talk Pie Factory. It's the first part of a mixed-use development. The project includes 83 units of affordable housing. It's 7:44. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The City Council in Holyoke recently voted to use federal grant funds to implement something called ShotSpotter. That's a technology used to identify and locate gunshots in the city's downtown. Some are skeptical about whether this will be effective, but Nirvani Williams reports that Holyoke's mayor says it's worth a try. After a fatal shooting in Holyoke last month, marking the city's fifth recorded homicide this year, Mayor Joshua Garcia stood beside local leaders outside City Hall, calling for justice. We do need justice. Justice isn't dispensed only by courts and prosecutors. I'm talking about social justice, which is the business of the entire community. Garcia told the crowd he wanted to help people dealing with mental health issues, addiction issues, and other factors that could lead to gun violence. Since that press conference, a big focus for Garcia has been securing the funding for ShotSpotter, a technology designed to hear gunshot noises and alert police. ShotSpotter is currently located in 11 cities in Massachusetts, including Springfield and Pittsfield. It's also in Hartford. In an interview, Garcia said a major problem is Holyoke residents not calling 911 when a gun is fired. And if someone is bleeding out in an alleyway from gun violence, And that call was never called in and could have been saved if we would have knew about it sooner and respond sooner. Garcia says ShotSpotter could help fill this gap. He wants the technology to cover two square miles in downtown Holyoke, which he says is where 80 percent of gunshot calls are reported. The cost? $150,000 a year. This is the last thing I want to invest in, but understanding the, the, the concern and, and it's a strategy that I'm, that I'm looking forward to try in the hopes that we can curve the concerns that are happening out in the community. Garcia says the federal grant funds the city council approved will cover the cost for the first square mile, while American Rescue Plan or ARPA funds will cover the rest. I bring up ShotSpotter not as a solution, because I don't think at all that this is going to solve our gun violence problem, not just here in Holyoke, but everywhere, but a, a potential strategy. When I share this this strategy, there's this feeling of, of uh, appreciation that City of Holyoke is doing something to, to um, help navigate these public safety concerns. 
Katie Talbot, a lead organizer in Holyoke for Neighbor to Neighbor, a social service organization, says she doesn't believe ShotSpotter will help at all. She says multiple noises could trigger the system to call the police. Whether it's a gun, a firework, a car backfiring, it raises the level of danger in those communities. So police will, again over police, come in ready to defend themselves regardless of the situation because of the amount of alarms that have gone off. There has been quite a lot of research into ShotSpotter. Mitchell Doucette from the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions co-authored a study published last year. It looked at cities across the U.S. that did implement ShotSpotter and those that did not. We compared what happened over a long period of time, in this case over 20 plus years. And again, what we found was that after implementing ShotSpotter in the years preceding, there was no effect or reduction in firearm violence. Doucette says cities implementing the technology need to keep track of where violence is occurring and where ShotSpotter notifications pop up, and then share all of that with the public. But he says given his research, local officials should consider alternatives. It could be more advantageous for for local communities and cities to spend the money they were going to spend on a gunshot detection technology on Uh, other proven evidence-based solutions, such as, you know, community violence interrupters and other types of solutions that have proven to be more efficacious. Community violence interrupters being people who are trained to de-escalate violent situations in their community. Garcia says the idea for ShotSpotter and the ARPA funding for it is a carryover from former acting mayor Terrence Murphy. Garcia isn't confident ShotSpotter is the answer and says he's willing to invest in other solutions. We're not saying it's either this or that. We're able to try all of it. Garcia says he plans to use ShotSpotter for two years and then reassess. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what they've got going for us today. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday Eve. Friday Eve, that's right. Um, and I'm I'm looking forward to the weekend coming up, thinking uh, a lot about the show today, Rupa. One story in particular that we're bringing We've got this complicated emerging situation with cities and towns raising their hands and saying the state is sending groups of families, mostly migrants, but not all, Mm -hmm. to hotels and motels without warning for, um, you know, to move them there for several months at a time. Uh, Concerns about everything from food and shelter to schooling for children, Mm -hmm. medical care, city capacity to respond. And, you know, as you were pointing out to me earlier, there's even a state constitutional amendment to, to this. We have a right to shelter, right to uh, home. Exactly, which is different than in other states. Yes. So uh, we've got Joe Battenfeld, columnist for the Boston Herald, who uh, has been following this. He'll come in. And the mayor of Methuen, which is the first community in the last couple of weeks to raise a hand and say, this doesn't work for us, uh, and we're going to really try to comb this out. As you were pointing out to me, it's quite complicated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that that's a great subject to keep following. Thank you so much, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. All right. That, that's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash 
NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. I'm Deepal Fernandez. A genre of music from Ghana and Nigeria is gaining traction around the world. It's called Afrobeats, with an S. Afrobeats is all about happy vibes. You know what I mean? Even when we're singing about sad stuff, you still want to get up and dance. King Promise, a rising Afrobeat star, reflects on the genre's future while on tour in the US. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. It was 1976. An Irish kid named Paul Hewson was trying to figure a lot of things out. His mom had died a couple years earlier when he was just 14. Bono, as he was known, spent a lot of time at home in Dublin arguing with his dad and his older brother. But two goals kept him focused. To win over the heart of a girl named Alison Stewart and to become a rock star. And get this, in the same week, Bono asked Allison out, she said yes, by the way, and he ended up in Larry Mullen Jr.'s kitchen for an audition. Two other guys were there, Adam Clayton and David Evans, also known as The Edge. The four of them would go on to become one of the biggest bands of their time, U2. By the way, Bono's still married to Allison Stewart 40 years later. I wonder if sometimes we do have what we need around us that's there. I I certainly felt and have continually felt that the people I need are right there. Bono writes about these foundational relationships in his new memoir called Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. I wanted to focus on another constant in his life that's central to the book, his faith. He was never a mass on Sundays kind of Catholic, but from a young age, Bono was fascinated with mysticism and ritual and Jesus. You write in the book... If I was in a cafe right now and someone said, stand up, if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, I'd be the first to my feet. Yeah. Did your band share your your focus, your preoccupation with faith? They still do. At first, Adam was just like, oh, man. He had just one thing in life, just wants to be in, like, the badass rock and roll band. And like, oh, my God, he won't write songs about girls. He's writing songs, oh, God. But he stood by me, you know, and stood by us in our devotion. You know, I mean, could you imagine Ireland in the 70s? It's a civil war, all but a civil war. The country's dividing along sectarian lines. I I was very suspicious and still am a little suspicious of religious people. I mean, religion is often a club that people use to beat someone else over the head with. And we learned that. I learned that at a very early age in Ireland. You write that a lot of U2's music, though, is grounded in the feeling, the emotion, even the structure of a hymn. Yeah, Edge's his family were Welsh. Um, if you've never heard crowds singing at a Welsh... Irish rugby match. The stadium filled with song and they sing these huge hymns. No bread of heaven, bread of heaven, thou 
me to like that. We'll support you evermore. And it's in him. It's in it. Those fifths. And that's the feeling we've been looking for in our music. Yes, we like we want punk rock. We want it to be brutal. We want it to be tough-minded. We want it to have big tunes. But the ecstatic music is sort of part of who we are. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. You say explicitly in that song, there's some kind of root of that. Yeah. That's a gospel song. It's a psalm, uh, if you want to. What's a psalm? Sorry, did I not pronounce that right? Psalm. It's a psalm. Is that how you I say don't it, know. Rachel? You're so posh. I'm from Idaho. I don't know <laughs> if that's my particular dialect. The psalm. Your dad said um, near the end of his life that the most interesting thing about you was your spirituality, was your religion. My faith, yeah. Your faith. He was brilliant. He had faith and he lost it, you know, just, and people do, just when you need it. You know, he was dying. And uh, I write in the book about going in to see him and I was reading him bits of scripture and he was kind of giving me the hairy eyeball. It was a little bit, oh, you knock it off, will you? You know, and I was so sad for him that it, he didn't have that because he had always said to me things like, you know, this stuff, this God stuff, I, I don't experience that, but you shouldn't give that up because huh. it's the most interesting thing about you, he'd say. It was, a, again, a classic Bob I mean, Houston. was that sort of a, a, a slight to you? I mean, no, <laughs> yeah, but he was... He was you this musician. And, and now you're picking it up. His, his compliments would arrive either with a tickle or a boxing glove, you know, and I remember when we were recording U2's first album, he's like, uh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I've just been recording the album. And he's like, you've been doing that for weeks. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's three weeks. This is the last week. And he says, how long is an album? And I'd say, it was about 40 odd minutes. God, you get it right. Get it right. <laughs> After 40 years of selling out arenas as a musician, trying to eradicate hunger and AIDS as an activist, Bono is ready to admit he hasn't gotten it all right. And the Dublin kid who's always been the big voice at the center is ready to hear what others have to say. Just shut up and listen is kind of where I'm at at the moment. I just need to be more silent and to surrender to my band has been at the core of what I'm trying to do with my life, surrender to my wife. And when I say surrender totally, I do not mean making peace with the world. I'm not ready to make peace with the world. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make peace with myself. I'm trying to make peace with my maker. But I'm not trying to make peace with the world. The world is a very unfair, deeply unfair place. And I'm ready to rumble. I was keeping my fists up for that one. The book is called Surrender. 40 songs, one story. Bono, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. 
To hear much more of my conversation with Bono about his family, his voice, his ego, listen to this week's Up First Sunday. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The world's leading energy agency says Russia's war in Ukraine will cause demand for fossil fuels to peak soon, but not fast enough to avoid global warming. It's Thursday, October 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, conspiracy theories are driving people to stake out ballot drop boxes in Arizona. We're going to have people parked out there watching you, and they're going to follow you to your car and get your license plate. It's going to happen. Also this hour, what midterm voters think about what the White House says it's doing to combat inflation. It's not really a communications problem that's causing them to be unhappy and concerned about it. It's a reality problem. And some hospitals are filling up with patients suffering from respiratory infections just as flu season starts and with another possible COVID wave approaching. Sunny and mid-60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says it's closely monitoring unfounded claims by Russia that Ukraine is planning to use a so-called dirty bomb within its own borders. NPR's Charles Maines reports Western nations, including the United States, are accusing Moscow of using the accusation as a pretext for escalation. There are some in the West that are worried that this latest Russian charge concerning the dirty bomb reflects Putin's dwindling options on the battlefield. You know, as Russia has struggled uh, in part because of Western arms uh, support to Ukraine, there are even voices here in Moscow that argue only a massive strike or, or the threat of one could shift for, uh, Russia's fortunes. And so Russia's dirty bomb allegations, true or not, uh, could in some in the West say provide Moscow with a pretext to take more drastic measures. NPR's Charles Maines reporting from Moscow. The violence unfolding in Haiti is likely to top the agenda during Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Canada today. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Blinken will be meeting with his Canadian counterpart. Armed gangs have brought Haiti to a virtual standstill. The U.S. and Canada recently delivered armored vehicles to Haitian police, and U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Brian Nichols says the two countries are still talking about the possibility of an international intervention. The composition uh, of that effort um, will be something that we discuss, uh, given that Haiti um, is a priority for both countries. 
He says he's optimistic that the U.N. Security Council will back an intervention, though diplomats so far have only agreed to impose sanctions on armed gangs in Haiti, and no country has offered to lead such a force. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A second woman is accusing Georgia Republican U.S. Senate nominee Herschel Walker, who is anti-abortion, of pushing her to have the procedure. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports that Walker has denied paying for any abortion. An anonymous woman says Walker drove her to an abortion clinic and paid for it back in 1993. And she says she's speaking out now because of his campaign platform that has called for a ban on abortion with no exceptions. Herschel Walker is a hypocrite, and he is not fit to be a U.S. senator. We don't need people in the U.S. Senate who profess one thing and do another. Walker has tried to walk back his stance to mirror Georgia's current law, which takes effect around six weeks and has some exceptions. He's also issued a blanket denial of ever paying for any abortion, including reports from earlier this month he sent money to a different woman a different time to have the procedure. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. City leaders are announcing plans to revitalize Boston's downtown. Mayor Michelle Wu says it's part of helping the city rebound from the pandemic. The plan includes adding new businesses, public spaces, and housing. It will also offer low or free rent to some startups and nonprofits as an incentive to expand downtown. After nearly a decade of negotiations, Massachusetts has agreed to pay New Hampshire for losses that state took on to curb flooding across the two states. Jung Yun Han reports on the $3.5 million settlement. It pays back all the property tax revenue New Hampshire lost out on in order to prevent flooding downstream of the Merrimack River. The state has had 15 flood control facilities in place for several decades. Massachusetts primarily benefited from that infrastructure. According to New Hampshire's Attorney General's office, since 2014, the two states could not agree on how much Massachusetts should pay New Hampshire. But representatives from each state reached an arbitration settlement which compensates for New Hampshire's losses from the past decade. They also agreed on a formula for how much Massachusetts should pay New Hampshire in the future. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jung Yoon Han. General Motors says it cannot comply with the right to repair law passed by voters two years ago. That ballot measure requires car makers in Massachusetts to provide independent mechanics with access to the car's technology so they can make repairs. But it's been a subject of a court fight. Court documents obtained by the Boston Globe show GM leaders say it's impossible for them to comply with the law the way it's written. The state attorney general's office says that isn't true. Today, UMass Amherst will become the first college in the state to sign the Okanagan Charter. That's an international network of colleges dedicated to embedding health into all aspects of campus life. Betsy Krakow is Assistant Vice Chancellor of Campus Life and Well-Being. We cannot talk about well-being without talking about equity and social justice and the differential impact on health um, that things like discrimination and systems of oppression may have. UMass Amherst becomes the 14th school in the nation to join the network. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Bruins are back in action tonight as they host the Detroit Red Wings. Boston has won six of its first seven games this season. The NBA has suspended Celtics forward Grant Williams for one game. The league says he recklessly made contact with an official during Monday night's loss. In your forecast, sunny today with a high in the mid-60s, clear overnight with a low around 40, increasing clouds tomorrow with a high in the 50s, sunny and around 60 for the weekend. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Focus Features with Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins, One Family's Pursuit of the American Dream, from writer-director James Gray, in select theaters tomorrow. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Days before the election, Democrats are addressing an issue that has endangered their majorities in Congress. We've heard it the last two mornings from voters on this program. My labor is up 30, 40 percent versus four years ago. But the cost of everything, utilities, electric, gas, every vendor is tacking on fuel charges onto the bills. I'll take an example, a bucket of chitlins used to be $8.99, okay? Nobody eats chitlins but black people, okay? Now they're $24.99, the same bucket that was $8.99 two years ago. Democrats might prefer that voters focused on something else, but here we are. So today, President Biden is expected to give a speech arguing that Republican policies would make inflation worse. NPR White House correspondent Espa Khalid has been following the White House approach to inflation over time. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are you hearing from voters? Well, a lot of voters I meet, Republicans and Democrats, agree they are frustrated with rising prices, but they differ on who is to blame. The key question I have been trying to answer as a political reporter is how, if at all, people's inflation frustrations actually translate to votes. And so, Steve, I went to an early voting site in Georgia. It's about an hour's drive north of Atlanta. That's where I met Samesh and Moshimi Karanji. They're feeling inflation on everything from bread and eggs to home renovations, but they voted to keep their Democratic senator in Congress. Economy, I don't think, has direct relationship with politics. It's uh, if economy is bad here, it's globally bad. And uh, the previous two years has been a very important factor. The COVID situation, supply chain situation, that I don't think politics has anything to do with it. I mean, economy is always like it has its ups and downs. And so they voted for the Democrat in their election. But what do you hear from Republican voters? So a little while later, I met Velvet and Daryl Sheets. They told me their number one concern is inflation, and they voted for Republicans up and down the ballot. We never run out of milk, right? We always keep milk in the refrigerator. And it just seems like it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. Um, Eggs, same thing. Our 401ks are down by 25 to 35 percent. There's, you know, one party controlling what's going on politically. You have to assign that to somebody. And so they assign that blame to the Democrats. So how has the White House been responding over time? You know, Steve, it has been a challenge, but I want to take you back in time to Biden's first week in the Oval Office. He was worried about COVID, hunger, evictions, and unemployment. 
Yesterday, we learned that 900,000 more Americans file for unemployment. So Democrats came in proposing this massive pandemic aid package, nearly $2 trillion. And this set off some alarm bells about inflation. Larry Summers, an economist who had worked in the Obama administration, took to the pages of The Washington Post and warned it was too much money. The president dismissed those concerns. The way I see it, the biggest risk is not going too big if we go, it's if we go too small. But by May, prices were creeping up. The White House insisted it was not a long-term problem. Biden's team kept using this one word to describe it. I expect all of this to be transitory. At the end of the day, a lot of that issues are transitory. Uh, most economic analysts have believed that it will have a temporary or transitory impact. The president said the price increases were the result of an economy roaring back to life after the pandemic. The vast majority of the experts, including Wall Street, are suggesting that it's highly unlikely that it's going to be long-term inflation that's going to get out of hand. But by the fall of 2021, inflation had hit a 30-year high. The White House stopped using that word transitory and spent more time explaining why inflation was happening and what the president could do about it. COVID-19 has stretched the global supply chains like never before, and suddenly, when you go to order a pair of sneakers or a bicycle or Christmas presents for the family, you're met with higher prices and long delays or they say they just don't have any at all. Inflation kept climbing. And then Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and gas prices spiked. The president and his team continued to blame a combination of culprits. The inflation has everything to do with the supply chain. You want to bring down inflation? Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Today's inflation report confirm what Americans already know. Putin's price hike is hitting America hard. Biden decided to release an unprecedented amount of oil out of emergency reserves. It was one of the few tools he had to combat gas prices. And he repeatedly told Americans he was trying to do more to fight inflation. My top priority is getting prices under control. But in June, inflation hit another record. And shortly after, Democrats passed a massive bill to curb climate change and lower health care costs. They called it the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's something they have been trying to campaign on. Democrats are lowering your everyday costs like prescription drugs, health care premiums, energy bills and gas prices. OK, some people cheering their asthma. But how are voters broadly taking the White House efforts to adapt here? You know, Steve, I've been talking to voters about inflation since prices started rising last year. I went to different states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Florida. And in the beginning, there was a sense that the White House was perhaps slow to acknowledge people's pain. But the more that prices increased, I will say the more we saw uh, how politicized this issue became. The White House is confident that it's done everything it can and things are beginning to move in the right direction. I spoke with one of Biden's top economic advisors, Jared Bernstein. Uh, and I will say, Steve, you know, this White House message does seem to resonate with some people, at least some Democrats. Uh, back in Georgia, I met Alessa Morris and Pablo Zacharias. They say everything does feel super expensive between groceries for their kids and lumber prices for his construction company. But they say the president is trying. We and feel like he did he, the best he could. Yes. Like every president has their thing. The situation. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like he's doing the most that he can to make things better. Well, what is Biden's closing argument on this? The president has pointed out that inflation is currently not getting worse and gas prices have come down. And his final message is essentially that the cost of living will go up if Republicans take over Congress. They take control. They've said they're 
first aim is to get rid of the Inflation Reduction Act, and inflation is going to go up, not down. And so, you know, Steve, he is trying to cast this election as a choice rather than a referendum on his own performance. The challenge for Democrats, though, is that they are the party in power. And so whether or not Biden is actually responsible for rising prices, he and his party uh, often bear the consequences of people's frustrations. Uh, Back in Georgia again, I met Dale Jordan. He describes himself as a fiscal conservative. He didn't like the Republican, couldn't get himself to vote for the Democrat either. So he voted third party. He blames Democratic policies for his high business. You cannot keep printing money. Just like in business, you can't keep throwing money at something. Democrats keep talking about this Inflation Reduction Act. Um, oh, that's a joke. Okay. I've read parts of it. It's a joke. It, it, and anything it does, it'll take, you know, 10 years for you to see anything. You know, from my interviews, it, it is clear that Republicans are angry about the economy. The White House is trying to counter that pessimistic view. And, and I will say in these final days, we're actually hearing both parties try to use fears about the economy to drive voter turnout. And Pierre Zesmachalet, pleasure to hear from you. Always a pleasure. Both men and women suffer concussions in sports. Yet the overwhelming majority of studies about concussions focus only on men. Researchers are meeting this week to consider what they don't know and how to learn it. Here's NPR's Becky Sullivan. Lindsay Simpson was just 16 when she got her first concussion playing soccer. She was a promising high school goalkeeper who wasn't afraid to be bold in her games. I dove for the ball and my body hit funny and I slammed the back of my head on on the ground, which, you know, you're trained very well not to do that, but mistakes happen. Her symptoms were so bad, she had to take nine months off. But still, she was recruited by the University of Maryland. Then she got her second concussion, a third, a fourth, and finally one that ended her playing career. Now, at 36 years old, Simpson still has questions about the concussions that have altered the course of her life. You know, that's the million-dollar question to me is, is why? Why did I get that impact and it affected me that way? And you watch someone take a hit every Sunday on TV, and they're fine. Questions like hers have dogged researchers, too. Studies suggest that men and women are different when it comes to head impacts. Women and girls might be more susceptible to concussions in the first place and might need longer to recover. But the concussion protocols used by teams and schools and doctors worldwide are largely based on studies of men. The doctor that's treating an NFL player on the sideline is using the same statements and guidelines that a pediatrician is using to treat a 14-year-old soccer player that's a female. This is Julianne Schmidt. She's a concussion researcher at the University of Georgia. She and some colleagues looked at the official recommendations made by three influential medical organizations, including the International Conference on Concussion in Sport, which is the one meeting this week. The startling part was just how male it was. 80% of the participants in the studies behind these recommendations were male. Only 20% were female. And many of the underlying studies had no female participants at all. Putting a number to that really made it very clear that this is a huge imbalance and it's gonna take a lot of work to bring it back into balance. The problem is that concussion research used to focus on American football, which is mostly played by men. Now, studies are better about looking at women and girls too, and scientists are learning more about why women respond differently. But there are still so many questions, says Dr. Christina Lynn Master, a pediatrician and concussion specialist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Like, why are women more likely to report symptoms than men? Is that because they have a more severe injury and have more symptoms? Or is there something about gendered behavior where they are um, reporting more symptoms or more likely to disclose as opposed to 
um, hide symptoms. There could be biological reasons too, Master says. Women have weaker necks, for one. Menstrual cycles and hormones could play a role. But what's needed is more research, say both Master and Schmidt of the University of Georgia. They say that's where this week's international conference can come in. There, a group of experts will issue an updated consensus statement, which they say could highlight this disparity and call for more funding to help fix the imbalance. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shnoy. Coming up with international leaders considering intervention to stop escalating violence, hunger, and illness in Haiti. We review previous way global powers have tried to intervene there. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Dublin School, Southern New Hampshire boarding and day school rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun. Grades 9 through 12. Open house November 6th. DublinSchool.org. For years, legal activists fought to free their client, who was an elephant. They argued that Happy the Elephant is being imprisoned against her will in a New York zoo. Well, earlier this year, the state's highest court rejected that argument, but the question is now out there. If corporations can have some personhood rights, why not animals too? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny today with a high near 66, clear tonight with a low around 40. Tomorrow it grows cloudy and the high temperature will only be near 53. Sunny on Saturday with a high near 59. It's 60 degrees in Boston. Coming November 15th to WBOR City Space, a conversation with journalists Margaret Sullivan and Eileen McNamara. They'll be talking about the battles they've fought against sexism throughout their careers. It's part of our Phenomenal Women series. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures, presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Japigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work. At jhpiego.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Haiti is in crisis. Gangs have overtaken supply lines for food, water, and fuel. The UN says 4.7 million people, nearly half the population, now face acute hunger. And the Haitian government is calling for international military help. 
But Haiti has a long and complicated history with international intervention, which stretches back to the country's founding in 1804. I talked with Robert Faton about this. He's a Haitian-American professor of politics at the University of Virginia. It's very clear that the last interventions, the one in the 90s and the one at the beginning of the century, did not resolve the problems that Haiti uh, uh, is confronting and was confronting. The one in 1994 was actually welcomed by most Haitians because it was the restoration of President Aristide, who at that time was extremely popular. But afterwards, when the UN intervened to replace the American troops, uh, that was a much more complicated affair. In the first instance, it had to deal with gangs at the time, and uh, Minusta intervened in the slums of Port-au-Prince. And that intervention was rather violent. But in the process, a lot of people who were not necessarily involved with the gangs suffered the consequences. But what really prompted even more uh, recriminations uh, was the cholera epidemic. Initially, the UN uh, rejected the idea that it brought it to Haiti, and finally it had to recognize that. And some 12,000 people have died as a result of that. There were commitments uh, in terms of reparation, if you wish, to be given to Haiti, and those were never really materialized. And we have again now uh, a surge in the cholera epidemic. So the results have been very meager. What's the origin of the gangs in Haiti? The dominant uh, person in the gangs is a fellow by the name of Cherizier, who's also known as Barbecue. And Barbecue used to be a member of the police, and he eventually created his gang. There is a federation of gangs. Now, there are private sectors uh, who are also involved in the gangs because they want to make sure that they have access uh, to gas and that other gangs don't prevent them from getting the gas. Uh, there are also gangs that are supported by the political class. The problem is that the gangs now have become a power unto themselves. Mm. And as a result of that, uh, the situation in Haiti is really a, a catastrophic situation. Is this a fight for absolute power or is it just a struggle to get resources? Yeah, it's very much all of that. Uh, the tendency in Haiti is that politics is a zero-sum game. People who don't have access to wealth, it's like a business. You get elected, you want to stay in office, and you want to accumulate illicit resources. Uh, the, the problem is precisely that, that the pie is very small, as it were, and uh, people want a piece of it. So politics is a, is a venue uh, to get that piece. And it's the same thing for the gangs. The very presence of uh, Cherizier, who is a former police officer, as the leader of the gang, as a symptom of the real poor uh, record of foreign intervention in Haiti. I mean, today, Haiti's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, but it wasn't always thus. It was once one of the fastest growing economies in the Americas. It was a major Caribbean vacation destination. There used to be a club med resort there, which shocked me. Yes, well, 
one should not either uh, think that those were great days. There was some economic growth uh, in the 40s and in the 50s, uh, and then Duvalier came and uh, the economy collapsed. Now, uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier came to, to power after the death of his, of, of his father in 1971, and there was kind of a technocratic project. He, he would become supposedly the Taiwan of the Caribbean. So there was some economic growth. The disparities were enormous, and there was still significant corruption. And one of the problems with the economy, at least this is the way I see it, is that the programs that were imposed by the World Bank and the IMF have not worked. They've created a very dependent economy. Do you go back often? I haven't been back since... uh, 2019 because of COVID. Now, I must confess that uh, I come from the Haitian elite, so the problems of the Haitian elite are very different from the problems of the vast majority of Haitians. You have Mm -hmm. a a chasm in terms of living standards, in terms of economic uh, viability, as it were. Uh, So we are talking about, about different worlds. Yeah. It's hard to find the words to ask this question, but in light of everything that you've told us, it, how do you imagine a more stable Haiti? Do you do you imagine it? Well, I'm personally quite pessimistic. Maybe the fear of an utter catastrophe might prompt some sort of national compromise, whereby the different political parties, civil society, can finally arrive at a Haitian solution to Haitian problems. So there is an element of hope, but if you look at the realities of the country, it's a very grim picture. The economy is falling apart, inflation is at about 35%, the local currency has lost essentially its value, you have this insecurity, you have a government that is completely legitimate in the eyes of Haitians. There has been protest after protest in the streets of Prince and in the larger uh, cities in, in Haiti. And yet the Ariel Henry government is still in power because it is receiving foreign support. Robert Faton is a Haitian-American professor of politics at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, with flu season ramping up and another COVID wave expected, some hospital administrators across the country are worried about their capacity. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live, presenting flamenco superstar Farah Quito at the Berkeley Performance Center, one night only, November 2nd. Tickets at globalartslive.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The International Energy Agency says Russia's invasion of Ukraine will have long-lasting effects on global energy prices. The BBC's Theo Leggett has more on the IEA's annual report. 
The prices of gas and coal have hit record levels this year. The highest burden has fallen on poorer households. And in developing economies, the agency says, some 75 million people who recently gained access to electricity may find themselves unable to pay for it. The IAA insists there is scant evidence to support claims that climate policies have contributed to the rise in energy prices. In fact, it says stronger measures will be needed to drive a huge increase in investment in clean technologies to boost energy security and affordability. That's the BBC's Theo Leggett. The Pentagon says yesterday's launch of a test rocket in Virginia was successful. The flight was part of an effort to gauge nearly a dozen hypersonic weapons experiments for the U.S. military. Navy Vice Admiral Johnny Wolf says the goal is to develop a new class of weapon. We will be completing uh, design development uh, next year. At, in that same year, next year, we will field this system to the United States Army. The rocket test was carried out by Sandia National Laboratories at NASA's Wallops Island Flight Center. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Officials in the town of Kingston say they need more support to house and educate migrants who recently resettled there. More than 100 migrants were relocated into a hotel in the town this past week by the state. Town Administrator Keith Hickey says the group includes about 20 children who will need to be enrolled in public schools soon. What we don't have now that I hope we're able to obtain or acquire um, is, you know, the support services needed for the, for the kids in the schools. Hickey says he expects more information from state officials today, including about reimbursing the town for services provided. We'll have an in-depth discussion on the issue of resettling immigrants today at 11 on Radio Boston. Boston police are investigating the fourth murder in the city in the past week. Police say a man was shot and killed inside a barber shop in Dorchester last night. His name has not been released. No arrests have been made. Plans the Pittsfield Police Department had to start testing body cameras this month have been put on hold. Nancy Cohen explains why. The department's goal was to test two different camera brands and choose one before the end of the year. But at a city council meeting Tuesday, a police captain said the testing has been paused because of concerns the police unions have. He didn't say what the issue is. City Councilor Earl Persip says he's disappointed the process is delayed. When we hear of a negative experience with police, it's always the police side versus the citizen side. And now we'll hopefully we'll have a recorded interaction so we can understand what's going on out there. Mayor Linda Tyre says the testing won't go forward until the issues raised by the union are resolved. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? The Bruins will try to extend their three-game winning streak tonight. They'll host the Detroit Red Wings at the Garden. Mac Jones will reportedly get the start for the Patriots this Sunday against the Jets. ESPN reports Jones fully participated in practice yesterday for the first time since injuring his ankle in week three of the season. In your forecast, we finally get a dry day today. There will be clear skies and temperatures in the mid-60s today. Tonight, it stays clear and falls to the low 40s. There may be some gusty winds. Tomorrow, some clouds and cooler in the low 50s. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston at 834.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Some hospitals in this country are overflowing again, but not because of COVID. Many are running out of available beds because of an early surge in respiratory infections, particularly RSV. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is covering this story. Rob, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What's happening? You know, Steve, this virus, the RSV, which stands for respiratory syncytial virus, tends to surge every winter, just like the flu. And for most people, it just causes something like a cold, you know. But RSV can be more serious, even life-threatening, especially for very young children and older people. What's different this year is that RSV is surging much earlier than usual. Here's Dr. William Schaffner. He's an infectious disease expert at Vanderbilt University. RSV is remarkably earlier this season. It usually is prominent in January and February, but here we are in October. And in many parts of the country, it's really started to make young children and some adults sick. We've had some people sick in our household in the last few days, and everybody's passing the COVID tests, which now makes me wonder, although people do have their flu vaccines over here, is there also danger from the flu? Yeah, the flu. Doctors have been bracing for an early flu season this year because of what happened in parts of the Southern Hemisphere during the winter there. And sure enough, Steve, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says flu activity is now increasing in most of the country. So far, flu's hitting earliest and hardest in Southern and South Central states, but it's already pretty widespread in parts of the Northeast, like New York and Washington, D.C. That's why officials are urging everyone to get their flu shots right away. Why would it be that the viruses would be hitting so much earlier than expected? You know, most of the common respiratory viruses like RSV and flu kind of disappeared the last couple of years because of all the masking and social distancing and other precautions people took to protect themselves from COVID. Here's Dr. Kristen Moffitt, a pediatric infectious disease doctor at Boston Children's Hospital. It's what's being referred to as this immunity gap that people have experienced from not having been exposed to our typical respiratory viruses for the last couple of years, combined with reintroduction to indoor gatherings, indoor venues, indoor school and daycare, without any of the mitigation measures that we had in place for the last couple of years. And so these viruses are spreading fast again, hitting babies and other young children especially hard because RSV tends to make kids sickest the first time they get it. Uh, Which would explain why we're hearing stories about children's hospitals across the country that are filling up. Right. Yeah. And these hospitals, a lot of them are getting really slammed, especially in northern states. And this comes at a time when many are already having a hard time finding enough doctors, nurses and other staff. I talked about this with Dr. Mark Wittisha, who heads the Children's Hospital Association. Most all the big kids hospitals are completely full. We have overflow going on in numbers of them where we're putting tents and temporary shelter capacity outside the hospitals. Many of our hospitals are on diversion, meaning they're not taking anyone new, but there's really nowhere to divert to. 
And that's leaving some very sick children waiting for hours in emergency rooms for hospital beds to open up. And, you know, Steve, all this is happening just as the country might be on the verge of yet another winter surge of COVID, raising the prospect of not just a long-feared twindemic of both flu and COVID, but now possibly a triple-demic of RSV, flu, and COVID. Wow. Rob, thanks so much. Sure thing, Steve. NPR's Rob Stein. Parents of young kids are dealing with other issues besides seasonal illnesses. For months, it has been hard to find baby formula. There have been many shortages since a Michigan plant shut down. And there have been a lot of fixes, we should say, but things still are not back to normal. NPR's Jimena Bastillo is here with an update. Good morning. Good morning. So, Jimena, this has been going on for months, and it has sort of dropped out of the headlines. But just tell us, what is the situation right now? Can people find baby formula? Well, if you look at the overall production numbers, they've increased. There's a lot more formula than there was this summer. Shelf stock data released just yesterday shows overall there's about as much formula on shelves right now than there was before the crisis happened. Okay. But one problem is when you take a look at the varieties of formula. Not all kinds are as plentiful as they used to be. Manufacturers streamlined their operations and some of them have moved to focus on making smaller cans, not the big ones that many people like to buy. On top of this, there are distribution issues. So stores in rural areas or certain regions might not have as much. Then there's the issue of overbuying. Families are still worried about running out. So when they see their formula on the shelf, they're motivated to stock up just in case. Hmm. So still several different issues that are affecting um, whether or not people can can feed their babies. What are you hearing from folks? So more than half of formula is bought through the Women, Infants and Children program, also known as WIC, and it gives people vouchers for the formula. But each state has contracts with specific brands. So this adds yet another level of complication for many people. Mm -hmm. I talked to Rakaya Charlie, a mother of an 11 month old in Riverside, Washington, and she told me what she sees when she goes to the store. Mostly empty shelves altogether and then the options are very limited on which you can pick, especially living in a rural area. She largely counts on WIC, but had to pay out of pocket sometimes to get formula when the kind that WIC covers isn't the kind in her store. Also, families that need specialized formula, they're having a really tough time still. Those were largely produced at the Michigan plant that shut down, starting this whole crisis to begin with. And Abbott is the company that owns that plant. They've told me that they've resumed making some of their Simulac formulas again, and they tell me that those should be hitting retail shelves in the coming weeks. So it's an election year. We're just weeks away. It's not great to have Americans out there who can't find the baby formula that they want and need. What does the White House have to say about all this? The administration says it knows there are still issues, but they're emphasizing that things are better. And they've also put in place a lot of temporary changes. For example, they've flown in formula from overseas. They've made WIC rules more flexible. And I talked to Brian Dittmeyer with the WIC Association. It's a nonprofit that works with health agencies. And he said he's worried because some of those changes are set to expire at the end of the year. It would be disastrous in this moment to pull back on the flexibilities because um, not just the supply, but the distribution of that product, of the contract product, is still not at a place where we can assure access every time a family goes to the store. 
And there are bigger changes that people want to see. Some lawmakers like Democratic Representative Rosa DeLauro plan on introducing bills in the coming weeks to try and boost domestic competition. So if one plant goes down, it doesn't have such a dire impact. NPR's Amanda Bustillo, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, there are increasing complaints about voter intimidation in Arizona with people who believe in conspiracy theories staking out ballot drop boxes. Sunny in mid-60s today, clear in low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, partly cloudy in low 50s, sunny in upper 50s on Saturday. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. Now in business news, Harvard is launching a new climate study center backed by a $200 million gift. The Salata Institute for Climate and Sustainability plans to hold more climate-related courses on campus and take steps to support those already doing work on climate change. It will also give small grants to people who want to break into the field of climate research. The Framingham-based parent company of TJ Maxx is cutting ties with Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West. TJ Maxx says it will stop carrying Ye's products in its stores. The company joins Celtics player Jalen Brown, who ended his affiliation with Ye's sports marketing agency earlier this week. A new gene and cell manufacturing company is opening in Watertown today. Landmark Bio was founded with grants from Harvard, MIT, and other local institutions. The company says its goal is to help smaller startups get their medicines into clinical trials. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, 55 migrant families were sent to a Methuen hotel by the Baker administration with no notice earlier this month. As more migrants settle in the Commonwealth, what cities and towns need to support them? The mayor of Methuen joins us. And that's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. One of the trends we're watching in this year's election is the trend in watching ballot drop boxes. It is normal and legal to post election observers, but in Arizona, the observers at drop boxes have used some extreme tactics. They are monitoring the people trying to vote for governor and U.S. senator, among other races. Voters have complained to the state, which has passed the complaints on to the U.S. Justice Department, which is led by Merrick Garland. The 
Justice Department has an obligation to guarantee a free and fair uh, vote by everyone who is qualified to vote and will not permit voters to be intimidated. The watchers in Arizona seem to be inspired by a discredited film. So let's talk about this with Ben Giles of our member station KJZZ in Phoenix. Hey there, Ben. Good morning, Steve. What exactly are people doing that would go beyond the traditional role of election observer of some kind? Think of it like a tailgate. There are people camped out, so to speak, at drop boxes, two in particular, one in Mesa, a Phoenix suburb, and another outside county election headquarters just south of downtown Phoenix. Voters report that they're being watched, they're being photographed, they're being filmed while they're depositing their early ballots into these drop boxes. And in one case, a voter complained that they were accused of being a mule and followed by car out of the parking lot after casting their vote. The mule there is a reference to alleged ballot mules who delivered fraudulent ballots. This is a reference to uh, the debunked 2000 Mules film that has really riled up some Republican election deniers. At the end of the last week, even sheriff's deputies were called to the Dropbox in Mesa because there were two armed men dressed in tactical gear parked nearby. Wow. Now, you mentioned Republican election deniers. I guess we should note the context here. It comes after uh, former President Donald Trump has continued to deny his 2020 election defeat that was affirmed by thousands of election officials from both parties and dozens of courts. So what are Republican officials saying about the election watchers now? Well, they've been encouraging this behavior, not just now, but even over the summer. State Senator Kelly Townsend, she had this warning for alleged ballot box stuffers at a legislative hearing back in May. We're going to be out there. We're going to have hidden trail cameras. We're going to have people parked out there watching you, and they're going to follow you to your car and get your license plate. It's going to happen. So don't try it. Don't try it anymore. And it's not just Townsend. Mark Fincham is the Republican nominee for Secretary of State here, uh, an election denier through and through. He has also called on people to do this and defended the people who are out there in tactical gear as we speak almost. With all of that said, of course, it's a public place. It is legal to monitor election activity in some way. So what can voters do if they do feel threatened? Voters are being encouraged to call 911, call the police. Um, But the problem is there's not much to do for local law enforcement. There's this fine line between, you know, what is monitoring a drop box and what is voter intimidation. Uh, The rules state that people must maintain a distance of at least 75 feet from the drop box. But beyond that, there's this sort of gray area that's flustered local law enforcement. The Maricopa County Sheriff described the situation as absurd and has had to devote resources to monitoring the Dropbox vigilantes, he says, to help give people the confidence to vote. Wait a minute, they're monitoring the people who are monitoring the people who are voting. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you. That's Ben Giles of KJCZ. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the CEO of Hewlett-Packard talks about how the trend of people working from home is driving increased demand for the company's technology. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is on the line from California to fill us in on what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Hi, Rupa. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm doing well. We have a lot on the show today. And uh, in addition to some of the major news of the day, I wanted to talk about a segment I'm really excited about. <laughs> it's about this new music genre that is taking the world by storm called Afrobeats. And uh, we are interviewing one of the global superstars. His name is King Promise. And if you don't know what Afrobeats is, if you haven't heard this genre, tune in. Uh, it's it's sure to be fun. We're also going to take a dive into the world of the Jamaican diaspora immigrants through the eyes of a new author, Jeffrey Escoffrey. So we have a lot coming up on the show today for you. Very interesting. Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. A North Carolina woman recalls a difficult pregnancy decision made harder by the state's abortion restrictions. It's surreal watching people fight about whether I should have had the right. A new series called Days and Weeks about lives change in the post-Roe era. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Mid-60s today under sunny skies, low 40s tonight. Tomorrow some clouds move in and temperatures rise only to the low 50s. It'll be sunny and a little warmer on Saturday in the upper 50s. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston at 851. We can keep talking inflation, but the data this morning show the U.S. is not in a recession. Au contraire. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. I'm David Brancaccio coming to you this week from Houston, where we're putting a Texas focus on some of our coverage. But first, we just got the latest reading on economic growth in America. After two quarters of contraction, there's been a rebound. The U.S. economy expanded at an annual rate of 2.6 percent in the summer to fall quarter. It's more than expected, but the real concern is what happens to hiring as we go into winter, given all these higher interest rates being engineered to fight inflation. Let us do the numbers. Stock indicators are mixed, with Dow futures up 262 points, 8 tenths percent. S&P futures up slightly 2 points. It's the Nasdaq futures that are down 4 tenths of a percent. We're also covering the ugly profits report from Meta, a.k.a. Facebook. They're spending a lot of money to develop the next-generation immersive online digital experience, the so-called Metaverse. Its Reality Lab division lost more than $9 billion this year, and advertising revenue is tapering amid talk of recession. Meta Facebook stock is down 23% pre-market. Now, to fight inflation, the European Central Bank pushed up interest rates sharply this morning by three quarters of one percentage point. The U.S. Federal Reserve is set to do the same next week. Set a calendar reminder for 2 Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, Wednesday, the 2nd of November. Now, with economic issues top of mind for voters headed to the polls in less than two weeks, the White House is announcing another initiative to lower the cost of living. It is attacking what it calls junk fees. Marketplaces, Nancy Marshall-Genzer has that. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is leading the charge against bank fees. It's rolled out guidance prohibiting banks from charging overdraft fees when consumers have enough money for a debit charge when it's authorized, but because of the timing of other charges to their account, end up with an overdraft fee. The guidance also covers fees banks charge when a customer deposits a check that bounces because the check writers didn't have enough money in their accounts. 
And the Federal Trade Commission is starting to write new rules on other fees, including on tickets for events like concerts or resort fees at hotels or fees airlines charge so you can sit next to your child. The FTC has already proposed a rule that would restrict fees by car dealers, including add-ons like nitrogen-filled tires. The Biden administration says extra fees like this cost consumers tens of billions of dollars. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. And by In Deep Season 2, which follows the people in a working-class city as they struggle to rebuild after a year of climate chaos. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're coming from Houston this week, as I said. Let's talk to one of this region's newest technology CEOs. Antonio Neri is the boss at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. It does the pro stuff, servers, remote computing in the cloud, the new supercomputer for Oak Ridge National Lab. In 2014, HP Enterprise split from its sibling, HP, the printer and laptop company. And earlier this year, Neri moved his headquarters from San Jose, California to just north of Houston, in part, he says, for a lower cost of living and to get access to the supply of tech people coming out of the universities in this part of Texas. Mr. Neri, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I saw a survey. An enormous percentage of CEOs think we're going to be in a recession next year. What are your thoughts on this? Well, definitely we're going through uh, turbulent times, right? So think about the geopolitical aspects of where we live today. I think uh, at the same time we see inflation. So all this is catering to some sort of reassessment, realignment of the economy. However, you have to look at by segment, right? So when I think about enterprise IT, uh, every business today is an IT business. And we live in a digital economy. And to me, data is the new currency, which means those who can extract value from the data faster will be winners. So it's an exciting time for IT. I think IT, enterprise IT, will be a little bit more resilient than consumer, for example, because in the end, customers need to continue to invest. When you think of the future of cloud computing, part of the calculation, right, is where we're going to work. You work at the intersection of two pieces of this. You provide services that can help with remote, but also you're a boss with employees. So what are your thoughts about the future of hybrid work, given the fact that, you know, we're getting into the third year of this pandemic? Well, I think we're going to go work everywhere. The fact of the matter is that now we live in a much more distributed environment than ever before. I think there is a balance, right? There has to be a balance because in the end, you want to focus on culture where you bring people together to innovate, to collaborate, to socialize. But today, you know, since we are so distributed, so is the data. We can actually access it from anywhere. So I think to me, it's not about where you work, but how productive you can be and what outcomes you're going to deliver against what objectives. So you don't see us going back to the pre-pandemic way of working? No, not at all. Uh, There will be certainly a pendulum shifting somewhere in the middle. But we encourage 100% of the people to be at the office as often they want because that's a way to collaborate and, uh, and also to talk to the colleagues about not only work but their social life, which ultimately foster the culture, the culture of we before the I, the culture of inclusion and diversity, which are important elements in today's environment. I wanted to ask you about your career path. I mean, you didn't start 
out here at HP sweeping floors, but you did work your way up through the ranks, didn't you? I did. I mean, uh, I joined HP in 1995, although that was not my first job. But I always was curious about technology and computer science. And then eventually, life, the destiny life says that I will move to Holland and I join HP as a call center agent supporting customers on the phone. In a call center, the guy who became CEO. 23 years later, yes. Um, you know, never imagined I would be the CEO of the company. It has been a remarkable journey because I learned a lot. But what I really love about this company is our purpose. Our purpose is to advance the way people live and work, to make a contribution. And 2022 was an amazing year because we brought to market some amazing things that are going to solve some of the biggest problems we ever imagined. Antonio Neri, President and CEO of HP Enterprise, thank you very much. Thank you. From Texas this week, courtesy of Houston Public Media, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. After days of rain, you'll be able to enjoy a lovely fall day today. It'll be sunny and in the mid-60s. Clear tonight, low 40s. Tomorrow, partly overcast and low 50s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.